on behalf of Gesundheit Österreich, which is the Austrian National Public Health Institute, I would like to welcome you to this session, the session on people, planet, health, co-benefits through health promotion. Um, my name is Caroline Kostungs, and I'm the director of EuroHealthNet, which is a European partnership of national public health institutes, regional authorities, and we are concerned about improving health and reducing health inequalities and taking forward uh, well-being. Uh, and I'm delighted to have this excellent panel here and to uh, and a keynote speaker and our um, uh, colleague from the Austrian Federal Ministry of Social Affairs, Health, Care and Consumer Protection, your department head, Judith Delegratie, and you would like to address the audience with some welcome words. The floor is yours. Hello everybody, dear participants. I welcome you all very warmly to this session. It is organized within the framework of the Austrian Agenda Health Promotion. Agenda Health Promotion is the name of the focus that the Austrian Federal Ministry of Health currently puts on health promotion. And um, within this focus, in spring 22, we founded three competence centers at our National Public Health Institute with the aim to strengthen well-being and quality of life in the long term. Let me give you now some information on these competence centers because they are the ones that inspired the content of this session. When we started the Agenda Health Promotion, first of all, we had a very strong political will to address the challenges of the climate change concerning population health as well as the health care system. Therefore, the so-called Competence Center Climate and Health was the first to be founded. What does this Competence Center do? It develops strategies and measures to reduce the CO2 emissions. For example, recently we've started offering consultations to healthcare institutions like hospitals, pharmacies, um, primary healthcare units on how to reduce their CO2 emissions and there's a very high demand for these consultations so they seem to become a um, success. The Competence Center also addresses the direct and indirect consequences of climate change on both population health and the health sectors, and we want to strengthen the climate resilience and climate adaption potential of the health sector and the population. Last but not least, um, the Competence Center is focusing on the synergies between health promotion and climate change mitigation. The second competence center we founded is called Health Promotion and Healthcare Systems. Why did we need this one? Um, basically because the reorientation of the healthcare system that was already recommended uh, in the Ottawa Charter still hasn't happened, or at least it hasn't happened in the extent that it should have, and there still is lots of work to be done in this area. Um, so the competence center supports the actors in the healthcare system in ensuring fair access to the healthcare system, in the appropriate implementation of both health promotion and health literacy in healthcare institutions, and in the implementation of person and health centered healthcare. At that point, um, 
after deciding on the first two competence centers that I talked to you about, we had a very strong feeling that we needed something more, um, because even though the benefits of health promotion are well known, the funding and the implementation are still frugal, and there still lies high potential in health promotion. So uh, what we wanted was a competence center that uh, focused on really pushing health promotion a huge step forward, and we had ideas like capacity building and innovation on our mind, and so the so-called future health promotion competence center was finally founded. Um, it is located at the Healthy Austrian Fund, and it builds on the expertise and the long-term um, long commitment of the Healthy Austria Fund to promoting health, quality of life, and well-being for all people in Austria. What does it do? Um, it strengthens health promotion and primary prevention by advocating for the further development of the knowledge base in health promotion and of capacities in research, practice, and policy. It promotes and supports the international as well as the national exchange on health promotion, just as we do today here in this session. And it pilots and it embeds the innovative health promotion measures. The Future Health Promotion Competence Center also is the one that had the lead in organizing this session here. So thank you very much to Galinda and to Petra for all the efforts that you put into it. With the agenda health promotion, we want to look beyond our own horizons, and we also want to jointly develop long-term future perspectives for health promotion. So against this background, this session is intended to support the further development of three fields of actions, and these three fields of actions are also the core working areas of the three competence centers that I've just introduced to you community health promotion, health promotion in the healthcare system, and climate action and health co-benefits. I'm looking forward to interesting new perspectives to a stimulating discussion. I hope you'll all enjoy these sessions, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, um, Judith. It's uh, really inspiring, I think, and a great example that Austria is setting with your agenda, uh, health promotion, and with the setting up of these three competency centers. When I listen to the themes of the competency centers, I think there are uh, several common themes that we will be discussing with the panel here. One is obviously working together across sectors. How can we do that better? One is about health promotion. How do we see health promotion developed in health systems and and generally, how can we boost the health promotion profession? And indeed, do we have sufficient capacity in place, human resources, financial resources, in order to implement it all? Um, before we start with the debate, I would like to give the floor to Professor Ilona Kickbush. She is instrumental in health promotion. As you all know, you were at the very start of the Ottawa Charter uh, back in the 80s. And uh, we would like uh, you to share with us what are sort of the Learnings uh, in the past decades, what are the failures, what went well, and what can be taken forward for the future uh, in terms of governance for health promotion? The floor is yours, Ilona. 
Yes, thanks a lot, Carolyn. And uh, maybe you should have taken a picture from me in 1986, and then we could have had a discussion about healthy aging or something like that. Uh, but uh, anyhow, I'm absolutely delighted to be here, particularly because uh, in my career, both at WHO and afterwards, I have been able to work together with Austria in general, uh, with the ministry, uh, with some of the organizations that that were founded uh, to strengthen health promotion and also with the city of Vienna. And uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate Austria uh, for keeping this flame alive because health promotion was not always popular and uh, it's, uh, it's quite a feat to have done that. And maybe that's also a subject for the panel to some extent, you know, what are these uh, sort of flows of up and down and how can a concept that's 35 years old now still be so alive? I'm actually quite interested here in this audience, who was born after 1986? There you go. You didn't even exist when the Ottawa Charter was founded, but I still hope uh, you know it by heart uh, because uh, those five action areas have actually uh, gotten to be stronger and stronger. And we know from health research in many different ways that uh, what was brought together in the Charter, even though sometimes we now use different words, uh, has been central. And we also learned that during the COVID pandemic. We learned that we need different types of policies that support health in many different sectors, obviously. We learned that the community is absolutely essential. We learned that health literacy uh, is uh, critical and uh, crucial. We learned that supportive environments are, again, absolutely central to being able to manage a pandemic, both the social and the built environment, if you think of uh, shutdowns and everything. And we learned that you know, this area, this weakest area that you already referred to, health promotion in the healthcare system, uh, failed us to a large extent during the COVID pandemic. And therefore, the starting point, and I had a conversation with Rüdiger earlier today, is to say, gosh, we have all this knowledge, we have all this experience. If you listen to what people say are our problems now, you know, how do we reach the community? My gosh, health promotion's been doing that for 35 years. But to some extent, we weren't asked. And uh, so I think uh, here is something also where we have to learn uh, while we move forward, and I'll come to that moving forward in a minute, but the compilation of uh, this enormous knowledge that exists and the difference it has made and can made, make is absolutely essential. And the good news is that also in WHO, where health promotion has sort of moved like this, it's up there. Rüdiger will talk more about it afterwards, but I want to underline that in the new strategy of the World Health Organization, health promotion, the promotion of health is the first priority. 
And uh, it says, and uh, I'll quote that, because that is the part of health promotion we ourselves have sometimes also not underlined and pushed enough. It says, promoting health by addressing the root causes of disease and creating conditions for good health and well-being. And what we said in the charter, a bit poetically, health is created where people live, love, work, and play. You know, everyone attacked us because of the word love. You have caring communities here. The charter was adopted in 86. That's when the AIDS pandemic started. That's where love impacts health. And I think that visionary thinking, and to some extent, if I might say, that courage that the community that pushed health promotion in 1986, my God, were we attacked from all quarters, is something that we, to some extent, also uh, need uh, to reintroduce, perhaps. You know, we maybe, in health promotion, need to become a bit more controversial again. And I think uh, particularly in this notion of a perma-crisis and what is needed to move forward and uh, this understanding, and we now have a word for it, and I'm so thankful to WHO and, and Rudiger, we said health is created in everyday life. And uh, where people live, love, work, and play, now we say, you know, where they shop, where they Google, where they do all these other things, where they travel. Uh, but um, the thing is, how can you grasp that in one term? And uh, at the 10th conference with the Geneva Charter, uh, and I hope 35 years later, one of you will give a talk and ask the audience, where were you in uh, 2021? Uh, the Geneva Charter says, you know, this, the health promotion of the 21st century, is to contribute to creating the well-being society. And uh, this, I think, must be the vision and the goal that we have. My second point is that, uh, of course, health promotion, and if we think about the discussion on the uh, perma crises here, from the start said, we need the policies of other sectors. We need to work together. We need to invest for health. And I think some of the discussion here at the forum has gone in slightly the wrong direction. It keeps saying invest in health. No, invest for health. And of course, invest in a way that the well-being society overall benefits, and not just health. So that you have a caring community, and we know that people who can care in good conditions also benefit for their health. Social support. Social su if you lack social support, it's as bad as if you were smoking 20 cigarettes a day. So I think you know, those kind of things are things we need to consider about when we say invest for health, which areas do we, we think about? And that, of course, the health system deals with the consequences of political decisions that have not been made political decisions that have not been made about food, about traffic, about the environment, and all of that. And I think also we should probably be more explicit about that. And for me, a European health union is exactly about that. 
The European Union has the possibility to be one of the greatest regulators for health in its present competencies. And this is something I think we health promoters must also fight for. Two more issues before I end. One that we can think that we from health promotion can also bring to the dealing with perma crises is that we were never simplistic. We always said health is a pattern. We always said health is a problem, uh, a process, uh, excuse me. And uh, therefore, we always started out from this notion that in political science we call wicked problems. Problems that uh, are generated in society and that need a, a broader approach uh, to address them, where one approach alone is not sufficient. And that's what we learned during COVID. One thing is not sufficient. We need to deal with wicked problems. We need to deal with constantly changing environments, complexity, uncertainty. And this is something that health promotion can bring to health policy in a new way that we have not done before. And that's so essential if we want to build trust in societies. So my fourth point is related to the competence centers. And uh, I think health promotion now has the opportunity to contribute to several major paradigm shifts. And I think it benefits from these paradigm shifts with new energy. I'll just name them because you'll be discussing them afterwards. The digital transformation of society, uh, the importance of resilience of systems and communities and individuals. Think back to Antonovsky the One Health and the planetary approach, the, inf the coming together of infectious and non-infectious diseases in joint strategies. All this is stuff that health promotion can work on and can contribute to. And I think these uh, competence centers give, uh, give an opportunity. And of course, you've just discussed the new economic thinking around that. What is the economy of a well-being society? What is the goal of an economy? And remember, the health economy, particularly if you were to combine all the, of the economy that is detrimental to health, and the enormous economy that the health system with everything that is linked to it constitutes is a major part of our society. And therefore, really understanding the economy of well-being and who profits now from ill health and who should profit from health is one of the central questions I think we need to answer in health promotion. So basically what I'm saying uh, is, you know, if we talk about the well-being society, this is a new social contract for health. This is a social contract for health that is built on investing for health. And that to me is the goal of health promotion in the next 10 years. Thank you. Excellent, uh, Ilona, investing for health and rethinking our economies and the many other uh, important items that you mentioned, which we'll be taking up in the discussion uh, later in the session. Um, 
Before we start with the panelists, I would like to indeed remind you that there is this Slido with the hashtag Moon that you can use to insert your questions, in particular for the online participants. But I would really like to get you in uh, live, let's say, so you can also save your questions for the debate later. Uh, our Jonker Steiner Torgin Isa will uh, monitor all of the Slido questions. So thanks, Torgin. I will get back to you, and we will also uh, hear from Ilona later. Uh, at the end of the session to reflect on the, the debate and what has been, uh, has been said. Um, so let's now go to our first panelist, uh, Professor Margaret Berry. Uh, she is a key figure in the health promotion scene as well. She's Professor of Health Promotion and Public Health of the University of Galway, and she's also the head of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Health Promotion Research. And you will look at this very much from the mental health perspective, no? And to see, okay, what are our challenges in terms of uh, economic and policy structures and in terms of our capacities for health promotion in terms of implementation. Margaret, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Caroline. I think I was also asked to look at the challenge regarding evidence-based actions, actually, as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll do what I'm told, and I'll try and address all of that. Um, as we've already heard, I mean, there is a considerable base of knowledge built up now regarding you know, cost-effective, you know, affordable health promotion actions. Um, but the implementation is very fragmented, and in most countries, this is not at a scale or scope that's going to make a critical difference at a population level. So I think, in fact, one of our key challenges is scaling up and integrating um, evidence-based health promotion actions into mainstream delivery in a sustainable manner. So looking to the future in terms of that. And I think one of the issues here is that health promotion is still poorly understood at a policy level. Yeah, the evidence is there, but what, what does it look like in practice? And I think that is a, we need to have much more effective advocacy around health promotion. This is particularly the case when we come to mental health. In the area of mental health, the discourse, the budget, the policies are still very dominated by a focus on illness and by individual-oriented treatment. Um, over 20 years ago, WHO clearly stated we need a population approach to, to promoting mental health and well-being that brings a focus on promotion and prevention alongside treatment and recovery. And that was driven off the realisation that treatment approaches on their own are not enough. It is interesting to see that in the 2022 annual report, uh, it states that um, the mental health budgets uh, globally, two-thirds of the budgets are allocated to psychiatric hospitals. Now, that is not going to bring about changes at a population level that will promote um, mental health and well-being. Um, and this was made clear during the pandemic that we need to respond in new ways to population needs. There needs to be both universal and targeted actions to enable people to support and enhance their mental health and well-being. And I suppose this is where adopting a health promotion approach comes in and has many benefits, because we've seen the area of mental health promotion develop um, to bring the theory and the evidence regarding how we can strengthen protective factors 
for positive mental health and well-being, and how we can enable access to skills, uh, to resources, and to supportive environments that will enable more equitable mental health outcomes, and to do that at a population level. So strategies have been developed that can address the determinants of mental health, and we know from the evidence the most effective ones adopt a life course approach, and they adopt a settings approach. Um, and the, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, quite a lot of evidence has been compiled, so we have good information about what works um, uh, in terms of lasting benefits and also in terms of the co-benefits. When we promote mental health and well-being, it has benefits for physical health, for social functioning, uh, for improved performance in terms of education and employment, and for general well-being. So there's a good case here, and there's a good re social return on investment in this area. So we need to look and see how we can scale it up and do that in, in, in a way that will really make a critical difference. I think for that to happen, we need enabling policy structures uh, that really give a mandate for cross-sectoral actions and for universal actions, so for departments to work together, to put in place the policy, the policy processes and structures that will enable effective working across departments, so that when they come together, there's a framing of the issue in terms of what is, speaks to their own policy priorities, um, and also that there are accountability mechanisms. Um, but also, and I should have said that the co-benefits are clearly articulated, because when people from social protection come round the table, like, well, what has mental health got to do with me? How can our department contribute? So that needs to be made much more explicit. I think there's also a need for a, a, a much greater focus on effective implementation systems, and we know this from the implementation research that has been done, um, looking at organisational capacity to deliver evidence-based actions at the national, but also also at the local level to ensure that the structures are there so that effective actions can be embedded into mainstream delivery. And finally, I think we need to see the workforce with the right mix of skills to work in partnership across sectors to make all of this real and to, to, to really facilitate that effective action. So just to finish, just coming to the community setting, which I know this session is focusing on, we have many examples of innovative community uh, strategies that look at promoting uh, mental health through for example, strengthening social connection, uh, through community empowerment programs, uh, through working in partnership across different sectors. Um, and they seek to kind of create social cohesion, building trust, and establishing social connectedness, uh, community development approaches. Um, but also addressing social issues of isolation, of the quality of the, the living environments, working with local councils to do that. I want to look at one example that has um, that is being scaled up, and this is the example of social prescribing. Uh, it's been scaled up in my own country, in Ireland, by the um, health service in cooperation with community and voluntary sector. It's also been scaled up in the UK through the NHS. I mean, social prescribing is essentially where, uh, where people are linked in with sources of community support. Um, it's called non-medical referrals, really. Um, so people can access the resources that they need. So it could be 
participation in creative arts, participation in education and lifelong learning. It could be peer support. It could be just connecting with people. We've heard earlier this morning about men's sheds, community actions, and these um, <clears throat> strategies. And I'm interested to see how this scaling up happened. Essentially, there was a commitment in terms of the program of government to roll this out. Long-term funding was put in place to resource it. Um, we saw there was buy-in from local structures. So all of that planning work was put in place. So we had primary care working very closely with the community and voluntary sector. And there was investment in the staffing. So we had link workers put in place to, to make sure this actions. So, and also there was a commitment to building up the evidence regarding both the outcomes, but also the implementation. So this is an example, I think, of what is needed if we really want to see investment in scaling up effective evidence-based approaches. Thanks a lot, Margaret. I'm happy that you brought up uh, social prescribing as an innovative example. I think there's a lot of potential there to further explore and, and, and get the data and the evidence uh, to what extent it works. Thanks also to bringing in uh, the evidence base that's out there. We know what works. Uh, the return on investment, I think that's an area where we may need more evidence, and I would like to bring that in the discussion later. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, working across sectors. So thanks for that. Uh, keep your questions for the Slido or for later. I now would like to move to uh, Juke van Dalen. Juke van Dalen uh, is also a person working in health promotion for many, many years. She is now the senior advisor at the National Institute for uh, Public Health and the Environment in uh, the Netherlands. And uh, you have a lot of experience with practice. Huh? So how at the community level, uh, sectors and, and stakeholders work together and you know, what are the challenges and the Areas and what can we learn after uh, so many years of uh, looking at how people are working together uh, and uh, in particular for this triple win uh, that what Help Emotion wants to achieve and what Ilona also mentioned for, for health, uh, for social inclusion, uh, but also for environmental issues and climate. Juka. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline. Uh, and thank you all for sitting here and uh, telling you more about enablers and the barriers of intersectoral collaboration. Excuse me for my voice, but I make it too late because personal relationships are very important, so I make it very late. But it's okay, I think. Um, uh, well, the first enabler, I, I do think you know all these enablers and also know the barriers I will mention. I hope, because you are doing it right. But we know a lot about enablers and we know a lot about barriers. But, well, we have to make more steps forward. But I, first I will uh, mention some enablers. And the first enabler, you know all, is a shared vision of the problem to be addressed and the successes of the collaboration. It, com it contributes to the commitment of your partners to have a shared vision. And it has to be a long-term vision. Um, and maybe the, the vision of well-being can help us. Well, the second is at the start. The second enabler is at the start of a, a collaboration. Start with connecting, connecting with existing collabora collaborations. Because we have not so much time, and in practice we have not so much time, those do connect with existing networks. 
A third is the communication, and it is about uh, regular updates of uh, of just the, the 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 progress and the success of the collaboration, and that is very important for the visibility of the collaboration because that is very. Uh, important enabler also to be visible in the community your, co your collaboration and it keeps also your partners engaged the communication and related to that I mentioned it already is the personal relationship they are very important in the collaboration here on all levels and for that you need in all communities practice that we heard you need to have face-to-face -face meetings i'm sorry for the online persons but it's better to be in person for the collaboration you 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 can you feel that you can trust on each other and you can rely in each, in each other so online is very good but do also do some face to face meeting the fifth is the win win situation win win the win win for all partners in the collaboration there has to be mutual mutual benefits for every partner in the collaboration and uh, I want to mention one uh, example of the triple win solution is, for example, a small community practice. It was a food garden. It was located in a deprived area and they produced fruit and vegetables, ecological. But they had also uh, people from the uh, within distance of the uh, job uh, of job market volunteering in the garden and the fruits and the vegetables was for the food bank this is a triple win situation every partner can win something had the added value so it's okay well I have heard it already, support in policy support in structural processes is so important we know that all for years from 1986, I'm not sure, but it's still difficult. Well, we can use the SDG, and this morning I heard an example of the Ministry of, uh, of uh, Slovenia, hey, you have to ex uh, connect with existing policies to get support for your sustainability of your collab collaboration. And um, I heard the Ministry of Slovenia say, say we had problems with the brief uh, uh, alcohol, uh, al brief alcohol uh, intervention, and we connected it with the employment policy. So she she connected with important policy. So that is uh, very important. I hope you heard me because the <laughs> I forgot the microphone. The, la the, uh, the last one, but not the last one in ever, but for this is very, uh, very important, is effective leadership. I have heard it all, uh, all more times here in the conference. An effective leader is capable to keep to trust to get to keep trust and to uh, keep a good color relationship and it is mostly a, a champion a dedicated person with project and good management skills there are also barriers and Often the barriers are the opposite of the enablers, <laughs> but we know all the barriers and think they are very known. I hope not too known, but uh, 
lack of budget, lack of time to work on the collaboration, and lack of qualified uh, staff or personnel. Well, we, you can't, if you have no time, you can't work on good relationship, and you can't work on understanding each other language. So that is what we need. Other sectors speak in other language, we know that, but we have to invest in that language and to uh, understand each other. And the last barrier is, I have uh, one minute, of <laughs> less than one minute, is uh, very important, I think, in all countries, the troubles of the difficulties in, in the public administration, in the, in the difficulties in, in legislation. Uh, uh, we're working in silos and that hinders the intersectoral collaboration. And I will stop now, but I want to share in the discussion an example. In the Netherlands, we are, maybe we are going to make a step forward in more intersectoral collaboration by making a little change in our system. Well, oh, but now <laughs> you want to know. <laughs> no, I wanted to. I wanted to. Don't want to tell because I am oh, too late. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, right. I this want is to a share nice it, but cliffhanger. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. Okay. It is a cliffhanger. Yes. Okay, it's a cliffhanger. So you need I'll to go. understand I'll, it. <laughs> yes, I'll go back to you. So, th so thanks for uh, the enablers and the barriers. Uh, I was thinking when listening to you with your enablers, like you know, the, the, the personal connections and talk to the people you know and, and, and sharing vision. You know, is it not a little bit too small? I mean, do we do we get more the drastic change that is needed if we if we move, you know, in with two small steps? And and how can we overcome that? And, and and that the public administration is so rigid indeed that doesn't allow people to do things very differently is, is important to mention. And you mentioned, uh, like what you mentioned also, we need a workforce across sectors. And that's what you mentioned as well. We need qualified staff to work across sectors. I mean, does this mean new professions or do we, are the consequences for education? for the discussion. Now I would like to move to climate because for help emotion it is increasingly important to work with the environmental sector and on climate change. And um, Miriam Privarova, uh, you are a, a youth for climate uh, delegate at the World Bank. And uh, my question to you is uh, whether climate and health indeed, how can you work more uh, better together, more efficiently? And what do you expect from the health sector? Uh, and uh, what sort of participatory approaches uh, can help here? So, Miriam, floor is yours. Yeah. Thank you very much for the invitation to speak at the European Health Forum, Gassa, and in particular this panel. So, as a Youth for Climate delegate and young development professional, um, I'm convinced that inclusive and community-level action um, must be at the cornerstone of uh, our efforts to fight climate change. I can see it firsthand within the Youth for Climate community. You know, it is the young people who feel empowered who then actually take the action in their local communities. And for many of the young people, a strong motivator for being interested in the environment was being part of an activity or a group on a topic they cared about. You know, there, there are many great initiatives all around the world started and led by youth, such as um, Subji Cooler in India, which is basically a portable zero energy cooling chamber that um, keeps vegetables fresh for five days without energy input. Or um, there is another one such as um, Tree Square in the Philippines 
that um, is a scalable model for urban reforestation um, through um, collective and individual action to re-green cities. So um, I really think that it is the, the local action that um, is the best suited to integrate health and climate outcomes and maximize positive externalities of climate action for health um, because um, it has an inherent legitimacy with local people and um, is well-placed to facilitate adaptation to specific consequences of climate change to every local area. And uh, community-level um, action also allows for climate innovation to be tested within the local area. And you know, it is often young people who, through empowerment and participation, uh, come up with and spearhead innovative and bold actions on climate adaptation, mitigation, and resilience. And actually, empowerment and participation are two important concepts uh, in climate action as well as health promotion. So I think there is no need to repeat that climate change is a public health issue. And WHO recognized climate change as being greatest threat to, to human health in the 21st century. And uh, we, within the Youth for Climate, uh, in our last year manifesto that was part of the pre-carbon COP processes, uh, we recognize that human and planetary health are interconnected. You know, the, the policies that need to be implemented to reduce greenhouse gas emissions will bring substantial benefits um, in heart disease, di diabetes, obesity, road deaths and injuries, and air pollution. Um, and the health benefits arise because uh, climate change policies necessarily impact on the two of the most important determinants of health, which are human nutrition and human movement. And um, evidence indicates that these co-benefits will result in a substantial reduction in the cost of healthcare in many countries, with a potential for very large gains for national economies. So um, given that health and climate have so much potential there to be working together. How come this link is still not sufficiently made use of? I think that we can all agree that the climate health nexus is increasingly getting attention, but we are still not there. And you know, the, the UN Climate Change Conference of last year, the COP26, actually put little focus on health-related goals. And similarly, health is often disregarded in the national um, determined contributions national um, climate policies. Um, but on the other hand, I must say that I noticed that um, last year uh, over 350 organizations representing over 40 million health professionals wrote a letter to G20 leaders stating that a truly healthy recovery from COVID-19 crisis means acting to prevent climate change. And I totally subscribe to that. So basically, how can we foster strong collaboration between climate action and health promotion? Um, the good news is um, when health voices speak, public listens. You know, the medical community is highly trusted, much more than governments and politicians where most people hear about climate change. So please, we, we have to make more use of that. And on the other hand, um, given our increasingly heard voice in the international climate change arena, uh, young activists' role in incorporating climate and health perspectives can entail in including um, climate change effects on health into messaging around planet-friendly behaviors. 
then also enhancing the nexus between well-being and nature and community level action local projects and also our role is to also uh, push for more focus on health-related goals within the national uh, climate policies and climate pledges. I really think that the climate action is our biggest opportunity for better health and well-being. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Miriam, for your passionate speech, so important, and I do think young people, they have the power to, to make a change at the top government level as what we have seen very much before COVID, uh, the youth uh, strike, youth for school strike and so on. And um, uh, I also think that young people bring up a lot of innovation, innovative thinking um, that, that is important for us to take up. Uh, and um, uh, I think health promotion, um, health promoters have an important role here to translate the, the climate goals to the health sector goals, because indeed not all stakeholders in the health systems are on board on the climate challenge, and health promoters have an important role to, to go from climate to the health care and the doctors and the nurses and so on. Uh, so let's now move from uh, the climate and environmental um, uh, objectives to uh, social objectives, social inclusion and social equity and how we can care much better of each other at the local level. I'm very happy to introduce to you uh, Klaus Weck-Leitner. Uh, you are working for Verein Sorgenitz. Uh, it's an NGO based in uh, Vienna, uh, and you are representing the, the caring communities, which I think is a great concept, the caring communities. It hasn't yet, tr yet trickled down in, at the, in the European Union bubble, uh, and I look forward to, to hear to you what you have to say. Klaus. Yes, thank you very much for this very friendly introduction and for having me here. Thank you to the organizers to be on this panel with this wonderful, experienced colleagues. Thank you very much. So I'll do this brief uh, statement in three steps. First, I would like briefly describe what we're doing as Association CareWeb, literally of Ferenc Wegenetz. Uh, second, like to highlight one specific caring community initiative in Vienna, and third, what we have learned so far. So first, as an association, Sorgenetz uh, Care Web, we're a very small NGO uh, situated in Vienna, which as a kind of network organization has the goal to open societal spaces and settings which enable citizens carriers out from the informal and formal care sector, organizations, politicians, academics, artists, and many other actors to relate it to each other in a new way in order to change social care cultures and care structures. So we are involved in very concrete caring community initiatives and also in international caring and compassionate community knowledge networks, and therefore also in the critical reflection of current societal developments in the care sector. As for example, last week with the organization of an international symposium on care and justice in Vienna. Second little highlight um, highlighting on the project, Achtsame Achter in Vienna. So in Vienna's Josefstadt, which is in the 8th district, since 2019, we're implementing the Caring Community Project, literally called Achtsame Achter, 
which means mindful, attentive, or caring AIDS district, and it's funded by the Austrian Healthy Fund. In the framework of these projects, my colleagues, Daniela Martusch and Gerd Dressel, have been facilitating, enabling the strengthening of everyday solidarities, solidarities in the neighborhood, of intergenerational relationships, of local care networks between informal and formal care givers, and of new networks between, I would say, classic care contexts or health contexts and arts, museums, culture, businesses, and civil society initiatives. And they are also creating forms of appreciating the life experiences of older people and caregivers through storytelling approaches. So this caring community project is very much about strengthening social participation, social capital, um, building agency, as well as health literacy and the co-creation of new local specific care works. Third point, what have we learned so far? So there is very high societal willingness to engage in community initiatives, but still, as we heard, a lot of need to develop more creative and locally specific forms of smart intersectional networks and governance structures. So it's not to exploit volunteer engagement or to misuse it as gap filler to solve the so-called care crisis. Second, caring communities are complex, socio-ethical, cultural, and structural uh, unpredictable development processes that are subject to their own very specific temporalities. So conventional project and funding logics therefore tend to fall short temporarily, economically, and also evolutively. Two more points. <laughs> we see one danger, one risk, that caring communities unintentionally contribute to a form of, uh, Silke van Dijk and Dinne Haumler call it, community capitalism, namely that the unresolved political structural care challenges, especially those triggered by capitalist economic system, are parked in the communities, in the private, and perpetuate care inequalities. And last, I'm therefore not a great friend of the concept of resilience and resilient communities, because resilience, in, from my point of view, essentially is a conservative, neoliberal concept that seduces people into creatively creating ways of dealing with difficult care challenges within an existing inadequate health policy framework. So I have more sympathy for the understanding of caring communities as transformative communities that are in correlation with other social transformation movements in the areas of environmental and climate protection, the common good economy, or the democratization of work. And precisely for this purpose, care policy, as well as health promotion, needs to be encored in all policy areas and appropriate forms of care governance need to be established. So health promotion can and should play a central role here, but not in the sense of optimizing consisting health systems, rather in the sense of the support for transforming systems as well as ways of life and care towards caring 
and sustainable and maybe more loveful societies. Thank you, Klaus, for introducing this new concept of caring communities, which has a lot of potential, I think, in what we try to achieve here. It's not about uh, uh, exploiting the resources that the community have so that they have to solve all of the health problems and so on, but it's also about proper resourcing of community care structures. And, um, and I think it definitely it, it, it's very much linked to health promotion, as you are saying. So it is a promising concept, and I would suggest for the competency centers uh, a topic to indeed dive into and, and more on how, how this can help us. Um, it is also uh, relevant very much to the European Union level because, as you know, the Commission has produced a European care strategy uh, linking and strengthening uh, long-term care and uh, early childhood uh, and education care. And uh, so there is definitely appetite at the European Union policy level to dig more into the, this concept of the caring uh, community. So thanks for that. And now we move to another big figurehead uh, in the field of health promotion, and that is Rudiger Krech. He's a director of uh, health promotion uh, of, in the WHO uh, headquarters in Geneva, and he was responsible also for the latest uh, global health promotion conference that produced this well-being charter that already Ilona, uh, Ilona alluded to. Uh, Rudiger, the floor is yours to talk about uh, that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Caroline. So, listening to you, this is really good news, right? Because we know so much. I have another good news. I have the bottle opener. <laughs> and without this bottle opener, you cannot, there could be as many bottles there, we couldn't drink it. And that is so, let me hand, it, hand this over to you. And that's very much what health promotion is all about, right? So, we think, we need to think things through to see whether or not people can actually have these conducive environments. So let me tell you a little story. When um, Dr. Tedros, our Director General, uh, called me um, in late autumn last year, um, he said, well, if I'm going to be re-elected, what should be my priorities? And I tend to think that we need to have health promotion as the top priority. So, um, and of course, uh, me as director for health promotion, I was delighted, right? But then also, we looked at the risks. We said we need to have a proper SWOT analysis. Our strengths, our weaknesses, the opportunities and also our threats. And we did this carefully and um, then Tedros still decided to say health promotion must be my top priority. He has other two priorities uh, identified in the technical areas. One is that, of course, we need to get much, much better in preparedness. And the third one being that, indeed, we need a drastic reorientation of the health systems. So the critical question he asked me was, how is health promotion contributing to those other two priorities? So let me give you just very quick some, some, quickly some examples of this. Just looking at what you were saying about health literacy, just imagine for the next pandemic, 
we would invest the same amount in producing vaccines in at the same time have health literacy programs for people to really increase knowledge about what is a vaccine, how is it produced, what are the risks, but what are also the benefits. And to do this in a, an evidence-based manner so that people can take their informed decisions. Just imagine we would have done this this time, I'm sure, that the compliance rate for, vac for vaccination would have been much higher. Just imagine community engagement. We know the do's and the don'ts in community engagement. Just imagine we would next time be at the table when we're producing those public health measures during a pandemic. That it's co-design that you need to look at the concrete environment in which we then are and then adapt a framework of a measure to the concrete environment. That would have, again, increased the compliance rate with those public health measures by so much. Because, of course, at a state level, or even at global level, at global level, you cannot see whether in this hotel we would be able to meet the one meter 50 distances and how we get to this place and so on. So to think things through is one of the strengths of health promotion that we learned in the last 35 years. So just linking health promotion to emergency preparedness and response in just the things we already know. That would be great. The second, looking at um, the reorientation of health citizens. Universal health coverage is one of the main goals in public health, right? So, if we were looking at health promotion and how we can contribute to drastically reorient the health sector, this means to look at primary health care, first of all. That means to look at the NCD risk factors, first of all. Then secondly, of course, to then see how um, we could actually prevent 65% of global disease burden if we did this consistently. If we then also looked at the health sector being environmentally friendly, so having environmental targets, because the waste in hospitals is great. So if then a hospital is also a good employer that pays well, and that actually then is looking at how we can use the shortage of health personnel so to mitigate that by doing a lot of prevention. That means, concretely, that the reserve funds of any sickness fund, you know, reserve, you need to have three months of reserves if you have a sickness fund to keep the machinery going. Those reserves are usually invested on the daily scale in shares, short-term shares. They should not be invested in tobacco. So you need to disinvest from tobacco. You're legally bound to do that if you're party of the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control. A health sector that reorients in this way would therefore also look at their investment practices. Right? So looking at, at 
how we can contribute to universal health coverage through freeing up a lot of resources through investing into the risk factors like tobacco, alcohol, you know, uh, physical inactivity, sugar, you know, that would be a wonderful way of looking at the universal health coverage goal as well. So I'm just outlining here what innovative health promotion means, and we can go into much more detail because we have so many wonderful experiences where we actually know and work on the instruments that we've started 35 years ago, but of course we need to translate that into today's world. Thank you. Thanks for highlighting your two points, health promotion, linking it better to preparedness. And I think this refers also a bit more to the behavioral and cultural insights units and work that the WHO is uh, getting off the ground. And secondly, uh, to demonstrate much better how investing in prevention will save costs uh, that can then be invested in universal health coverage. Very nice idea. And thank you for launching those. So now we'll have our uh, discussion and we will be starting uh, the debate with our two young Gasteiners who will give very briefly uh, their uh, take on it. And I would like to start to give the floor to Emel Yogansi. You are a psychologist and she is working in palliative care. So the floor is yours very briefly. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Amal and I'm from Cecily Saunders Institute, King's College London. And I guess my main question is, how can we ensure that while we're promoting health for healthy individuals, we make sure that it's equitable and inclusive of those that have serious health conditions and they also are included in maintaining their well-being? And what are the key policies that could enable that? Thank you. So you can think already about it. Uh, and uh, secondly, I want to give the floor to Torgin Issa, and you are a public health specialist. Torgin. Hello, my name is Torgin, and I'm a participant of Pan-European Leadership Academy at WHO. Uh, so I would, as a public health specialist, I think that to create caring community, not only healthcare workers, but the community should promote health. So I'll give you one example from my country. An initiative group of volunteers consists of uh, multiple specialists from diverse areas. They created a page on social media and they were busting the myths about COVID and vaccination. And this example shows us that using social media, we can promote health. Thank you. Thank you for that. And you're also watching the Slido uh, questions. True, yeah. yeah, could you, are there already some questions that are popping up uh, from uh, our online participants? Yes, we do have several questions. So the first question will be about the investments for health. So what are the, uh, so investments uh, for health have different implications for allocating budgets. So how to secure coherence and expedience? Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, I would now like to open the, the floor to, to you. Um, we have microphones available and uh, the questions that you have for our panelists or comments you would like to make on uh, the future of health promotion, on how we can work better together uh, and on how we can invest more in the future that we want for well-being. Who would like to 
take the floor. Yes, there at the very back. If you can also state your name and your organization, please. My name is Clement Siegel from the Austrian Health Insurance Fund. And I just want to ask a question, or maybe you can share some experiences about um, the common problem of some initiatives in health promotion, especially in regional communities. When the funding ends, a lot of times also the projects and initiatives ends, and how to tackle this problem or how to long-term establish initiatives because a lot of times um, people are at the end of the problem at the end of the project are not uh, used to how to go along without all the funding or all the the support of the project thank you for that is there any other question I'll go back to you for a second round yes please Thank you very much, uh, Nick Goldemont from the Netherlands. Uh, I raised a question about uh, budget allocation. Uh, so in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, uh, there was a discussion on uh, the, the, the business case, financial case for prevention, health promotion, which was very obvious, but political, it was very difficult to secure appropriate budgets in many countries, including the Netherlands. So if we're now saying, um, uh, health promotion, prevention for health, or investment for health, rather than investment in health, uh, supposedly it makes the discussion about how to allocate budgets across different sectors more difficult. Uh, because it's not more allocated than one budget, which you can control and allocate, but you are dependent on the sort of reliance and compliance from other uh, policy actors in, in the system. So, Supposedly, it makes it more complex. So, it was already complex in the last 15 years. So, how do we secure in this sort of logic uh, the budgets, the coherence, and expedience? Thanks for that uh, question. Um, so, we have a couple of questions from the audience. Let's maybe take the first one on, on the budgets and uh, how to get that organized so that we have more investment for health through other sector budgets. Is that, uh, yeah, would you like to go first, Ruge, and yeah. then Juka, yeah? Thank you, because I, I think we have a, a real misunderstanding here. Um, investment for health means to use also the fiscal measures that we have at hand, which are taxes, subsidies, and investments, right? These are the three major instruments that we have in fiscal policies, right? So what, I, what we're talking about here is that whole sectors would reorient their investments towards health, to look at this to produce better health. What does this mean? So, for instance, um, if you see that, um, uh, you know, about 76 countries at the moment um, are reviewing their health tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. Right, so what is, number one, the fiscal space that you're increasing? On the other hand, what are the commercial interests, of course, of Coca-Cola and companies to actually make their monies? So, in real terms, a can of Coke 
should cost $4.99 and not 86, uh, 85 cents. Um, a package of cigarettes needs to cost 23 euros. And a, Mac, you know, a Big Mac at McDonald's needs to cost $8. That is the real price if you factor in the costs that it occurs for the environment, but also for health. And that is a real thing that we need to come up with. Now, it's not about healthcare budgets. It's about health budgets. It's about using the economy, using the regulatory mechanisms that we have to regulate so that it's not that profits are individualized and the costs are socialized. That needs to change. And therefore, you need to invest. That's the current thing that you would need to do. So at the moment, of course, then it's not just ministries of health. It's ministries of finance. It's, um, you know, um, uh, um, the, the trade that need to be involved in this discussion and making those healthy choices. Right? Mm -hmm. So that is what it's about. And just to say also about this projectitis, you know, we're living from one health promotion project to the next, but what is this? If a project is there, it's about to prove concept. And if the, the concept has been proven, it needs to be mainstreamed, it needs to be available to all. Right? So that is the current thinking that comes back from an early, the early days of health promotion. With that, we will not actually address the major societal crisis that we have. This pandemic has cost trillions, and it would have been preventable if health promotion was there. Mm -hmm. So this cannot be a matter of, you know, a little $10,000 here and there. No, it needs to be mainstream, and that is what ministries of finance are very much waking up for. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, and yeah, I think it's an applause. How with the fiscal policy we can make those changes and how we need to work better with finance people and understand also the finance sector. It's not so easy to understand for public health people and it's important to get that understanding and see indeed how with taxation we can tax the bad and subsidize the good for, for health and the planet. That's a real good strategy forward. Duca, you also wanted to come in on the investment and uh, you also have your cliffhanger. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that's the reason why I took it in the microphone. But it is about finance, and it is about a system change, uh, and I want to share in the Netherlands, we, uh, because of the COVID, we see some movement. There is more uh, possible for the health promotion. And what we see, that was all earlier, we see more like uh, intervention in, in the care, like combined lifestyle intervention, also social prescribing, are part of our basic health insurance package. That is a huge movement, because now prevention is for a part financed by the health insurance package. But on the other hand, what we are now are going to do is 
we before this year we are working in silos of we have separate programs we have programs for health inequalities for overweight for alcohol for smoking for healthy environment and uh, after covid the ministry decided to in, to change the law which is not uh, success yet but uh, to change also the finance so we have all uh, before we had all budgets for all these programs now the budget is combined so social prescribing and healthy environmental health inequalities but also sports are combined all these combi and it the budget is going to the municipalities and they have to make integrated plans and uh, to intersectoral collaboration for these topics I'm not sure it is successful, but I think it is one step ahead because you can combine the, the money. And you have to use the data. Is this important for us? Is this an important problem for us? But we need to collaborate with other sectors to be successful. And, well, it is a step. It is not everything, I think. We, but, well, also the other ministries are involved in this budget. So I am... I want to tell you about three, four years ahead, what is the success of this kind of change? Mm. That's yeah. just a practical example. Yes, very, very nice, because having common joint budgets that brings people together, no? already the fact that there is the money available allows them maybe to, to work better together and see the, the commonalities. Um, very promising, nice. So we have a few uh, qu questions outstanding. Also, the question from our young Steiner about health promotion is it good for uh, including for 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 people that are already ill or have health problems? Uh, you know, how can it be inclusive? Um, that it is not only like well-being for the ones that are healthy already, and very much the always risk that we have in health promotion that we unintentionally widen uh, the the gap uh, of health inequality. Um, so that question is there and about this, the, the projects base, I don't know whether Margaret, whether you want to say something about it. Yeah, just a quick reaction on that. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the pattern up to now has been, you know, let's invest in a pilot initiative, give it a couple of years, put in the research and, you know, and then maybe move on to another one, to something else that's new. The, the examples of where we've seen uh, initiatives mainstreamed it has taken a, at least about 10 years, which is too long for that to happen. So I think that process needs to be massively speeded up. Um, and we, we also need to see, I think, the generation of evidence for implementation, actually. You know, you've got the evidence regarding, yes, the outcomes are effective, but you need also the research around the how. How will this work at the local level? And that, you know, we need building up, building up that base. To come to the question about the inclusiveness, which is, of course, the fundamental principle of health promotion. And health promotion works at the population level, but it isn't just for healthy people. Health can be promoted across the board. And also we can see from the evidence that, in fact, health promotion has the biggest impact for those who are most at risk, actually. Yeah? 
um, and that they're, you know, so, so it, it works. It works at that level as well, and that that is really quite important. And also, community initiatives often work with people who are most disadvantaged and most excluded, and come to 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 bring them into being more central within communities. So that bridging social capital piece. So this is fundamental to what health. The equity impact must never be lost sight of. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Uh, I would like to to see if there's one more comment or question you would like to ask. This is your final moment. Yes. Please, if there's a microphone for the lady in the front. And if there's anyone else. Yeah, thank you so much. Actually, um, most of the things that I wanted to comment on have already been said. My name is Andrea Schmidt. I am um, the head of the Competence Center for Climate and Health in the uh, Austrian National Public Health Institute. Um, and um, I wanted to, um, first I wanted to just say, allow me one sentence on also um, the importance of the health sector for fighting uh, climate change, which Rüdiger mentioned, but just also to um, kind of not only say, to say that it doesn't work only in that direction, but also in the other direction, so that actually the health sector has a responsibility um, also in, um, yeah, you know, becoming more climate friendly. So I'm very happy that Austria has been brave enough to, to uh, have to tackle this challenge. And also I wanted to say that um, because uh, it was said in the intervention from the lady from the World Bank um, that it's mainly young people um, fight, uh, in the climate movement. And I would like to challenge that as well because uh, I think everyone in this room, um, also those born after 1986 um, <laughs> have a role to play, and uh, I, um, I do believe that uh, that we shouldn't uh, also uh, think that it's just a movement of young people. Um, now, my question. Uh, so, uh, I wanted to ask, um, who are the professions, um, in your uh, opinion? So, we had a large panel on the health workforce yesterday, um, and so what is what professions do we actually need to get to this, um, as it was called, a transformative uh, communities or um, yeah. What is, what is the role? Uh, are these medical doctors, are these social prescribers, uh, uh, agents, or are these other, uh, other professions? Thank you. Thank you. Very nice question. Yes, um, Milani. Thank you very much. Excellent session. Uh, Mihai Koke from Hungary. So let me continue the convincing statement by Rüdiger. Uh, and the need of cooperating between staff of health and finance ministries. So my question is, do you think it is enough? Shouldn't we move further and discover the sometimes dirty world of politics and approach top policymakers, parliamentarians, and so on? So let me be frank. A couple of them may be dependent on industries in terms of financing their re-election campaign. We have to be sure about these things. We need to work for more accountability, transparency, for having regulations and laws on these things to make your dream true. Thank you. 
Thank you for that. Um, I would like to give uh, all five of you one more uh, you know, opportunity to, to speak and uh, take those two questions into account. So one is on the, the workforce for health promotion, and it's very fragmented, but the health promotion community is there, and many more people are doing health promotion without them knowing. Um, and secondly, on the issue of politics. It's so much linked to politics, and do we do, do, are we active enough on the political determinants of health? Um, and, well, I thought I'll start with you and then I'll go off, yeah, <laughs> to the very end. Yes. So, um, I suppose, final, final statement. I think we need to, to invest in what works. We have a lot of information, but we need to really see investment in cost-effective approaches that will make a significant difference. And we also need to build the capacity to deliver on that and to mainstream. I think this is that, that actually we need to invest in resourcing the scaling up of what works. Leave it at that, yeah. Thank you. Juka? With respect to the professionals, I think we need linking agents, uh, and we need, uh, well, of course, health promotion specialists, and, but especially linking agents who are capable to make the connections between uh, the healthcare, environmental care, and also uh, the health promotion. Uh, so that it's not, I think a lot of professional can be, but it is the, the, the role, the, the, what we need. We need uh, people with expertise, but we need the, if the capability to connect all these uh, sectors. That's what I'm Thank you. So maybe thinking through the professions, because also these statements were for sort of uh, the, the, the tips and the recommendations and advice from the panelists for the development of the three competency centers uh, that are now being set up. So, yes. Yeah, I also want to add one thought on this question, whom, whom do we need? Uh, I think uh, a well-balanced uh, mixture of engaged citizens and professionals out of all sectors, and mainly professionals who have a kind of self-understanding of enablers, of connectors, of bringing different worlds together in best case. And therefore, we would need, I think, so new spaces on a very local level, but also in a kind of intermediate level to bring together these different uh, resources. And um, one final thought in, in listening here, this panel, I, I think we can very well build on this uh, transformational energy and passion of societal movements in care contexts and un other contexts we've heard. And I think to enable them to bring this in practice, we need this kind of uh, new governance structures we discussed. Yeah? And that would be the next step. Thank you. Yeah, I also agree that we really need to, to scale up and, and to mainstream the relevant initiatives and relevant actions. And I also totally agree with you that it's not only young people who have a particular role in play, but um, every, every one of us. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. I'll first go to Rudiger and then back to you, Juka. Rudiger, yes? Yeah. Um, First of all, uh, what sort of expertise do we need um, in, in doing this? I think we have a huge experience in, in this work, which we call health in all policies, where we look at what is it, what sort of skills, competencies do we need in the health system overall? And um, 
what it needs, of course, there's a role for social science, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, but then what sort of skills do we need? We need to listen to the agendas of the others. We need to understand what is the role of the housing sector, the transport sector, or the banking sector, right? And then make propositions that, f that are useful to them and useful for health. That is, I think, the learning that we have, so, and also the skills, therefore, to mediate an issue of the Ottawa Charter. Empower, mediate, advocate. So these are still the, the, the skills and competencies that we need in health promotion, that we need to improve, of course, but, and translate into today's world. But that's, that's what we need there. Mihaly, yes, of course, it's politics. Of course. Let me, let, let me give you one example. So we're going, there's this World Health Summit in Berlin, oh, an important event that you all need to follow online or be in person. But there we're going to launch a consortium for tobacco cessation. You know that 400 million smokers want to quit? And during COVID, it was actually even an estimated 200 more, 200 more million smokers. So this huge number of smokers who really want to quit smoking. And then the tobacco industry says, oh, go and have e-cigarettes or vape. That's a cessation device. And of course, we know that this is all fake. It's, it's not true. So we're having a consortium with the social media, Facebook, Viber, TikTok, together with those pharmaceutical companies who have these nicotine uh, 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 reduction devices, so, uh, you know, medicines, um, and, of course, the health insurance funds. So all of those have a different interest, a commercial interest, which is different from that of the tobacco industry. So when we're talking about health in all, or we used to talk health in all policies and commercial determinants, we need to work within those politics to understand there's different commercial interests that might actually balance themselves out. So if we then have social media campaigns that put the truth front, up front about all the risks with e-cigarettes and vaping, that this is not a cessation device, but on the contrary, to offer, you know, um, not only apps, but things, you know, the environments, digital environments, in which I get the help when I have this need to smoke. Mm -hmm. Right? That is yeah. a new way of thinking on commercial determinants yeah. and politics, and I think mm -hmm. that's the way we need to go. Yes, thanks for that. And I do think that the commercial determinants and politics all also is brought together by the economy of well-being principle that we discussed uh, earlier today in another session. Uh, and these are vital uh, to address uh, for us in the future, vital questions for your competency centers. Juka, you wanted to briefly take the floor because I also would like I to... I had to end with one sentence. Yes. And what, I, what we need is use, uh, use data, evidence, practices, 
and this moment of momentum of post-COVID to keep or to put on health promotion, intersectoral collaboration, on the political agenda and also to influence the political will to uh, change, to make some slight changes in the mm -hmm. system. That was my yes. take out message. Yeah, <laughs> good. We have to keep going. <laughs> okay, thanks uh, to all of you. I would now like uh, to invite Ilona to take the floor for a wrap up and your reflections on the debate so far. Thanks very much, Carolyn. Thank you very much to the panel. And I just want to let you know I was rushing around a little bit earlier because I had left my iPhone somewhere. And I actually got it again. So I'm a complete human being. <laughs> yes, but uh, that's why there was uh, some unrest. I just want to highlight a, a couple of things that uh, I find particularly important. And one is this tension that we do have in health promotion. We want to be transformative. We want to contribute to big changes, whatever we call them, you know, uh, investment for health, uh, caring communities, whatever. At the same time, we have a responsibility towards people here and now. And we have particular responsibilities, as uh, this question over there by one of the younger Steiners uh, put forward, uh, towards the most vulnerable. And to balance that, I think, is a, is a tremendous responsibility. Because we don't, I'm not going to go into a discussion about how we define resilience. But the issue is, uh, no, we, we don't want things to remain as they are. But we have to be useful to people where they are. And uh, whatever words we use for it, I, I think that is the important thing. And there, your message is so important, where we do have outcomes and we do have research and we can show this works. Uh, there we need to have uh, the strength and the support of communities, of politicians, of parliamentarians to take it to scale and to find new ways of financing it either close to the health system or elsewhere. And yes, it was a big step forward when uh, uh, in, uh, in Germany, for example, prevention became part of the responsibility of the health insurance. It was a revolution at the time, but we saw it was not as transformative as we had hoped it would be. And we're still fighting for it. And uh, if you look at the development, some of the German speakers here will know of this concept of a Gesundheitskiosk, of a walk-in clinic in a way where people, particularly vulnerable people in communities, can go to. Uh, it's, uh, it just doesn't move forward because entrenched interests not even in society, overall entrenched interests in uh, fossilized health systems will not allow change. And I, I think this, you know, this reorienting health systems is, uh, continues to be an enormous challenge because actually health professionals, doctors, health insurers, etc., should be the supporters of this transformation, but, uh, but they are not. 
and I, I hope that we can also, to some extent, discuss this more openly maybe next year in, in Gastein, what this means. The second thing I just want to raise uh, relates to some of these, in quotes, financial discussions we've had. We always talk about finance ministers. I'm actually interested, and again, I take uh, the example from Germany, we actually have two ministers. We have a finance minister, and we have a minister for the economy. And the minister for the economy in Germany actually has a department that is called Gesundheitswirtschaft, the health economy. And I think if we are discussing around investment for health, we have to become much more astute, first of all, in how we define that health economy, how we define profit-making within that economy. And the health economy is becoming more and more and more important for all countries. And it's a major global economy. And unless we look carefully who profits, who benefits, where is their real investment for health, and uh, where is it, you know, you just need to take diabetes, you go to a, a health promotion conference and you hear all about, you know, you're depressed when you leave, when you hear about how diabetes goes up and you go next door uh, to the economic conference and you hear how much the growth of diabetes contributes to the growth of the gross national product. Uh, because, uh, you know, so I think we need to be more astute here in terms of sort of macroeconomics, but to some extent then also microeconomics if we talk about uh, the local. And that's my very last point. Yes, uh, we do need uh, local action. In many cases, the, this health in all policies is easier. We ran a major uh, project in South Australia on health and all policies, which was all about co-benefits and putting a health lens on policies, as we said. And our first major success was when we went to one of the council meetings and they were discussing a housing project and one parliamentarian raised her hand and said, what does that mean for health? And I think that is what we want. Uh, and there you are totally correct. For that, we need connectors. Health promotion are people in German, we say, man muss sich den Mund fusselig reden, yeah? Health promotion people are people who connect, who have to be able to talk, who have to be able to convince, but have the evidence and the data at their hand. And this is what we need to work on, and then maybe we can take it to scale. Thank you very much. Okay, I would like to thank Ilona for your final words, very insightful as ever. I would like to thank Judith for uh, your vision for the health promotion agenda in Austria. I would like to thank all of the speakers, really great, well done, Margaret, Juke, uh, Klaus, Miriam and uh, Rudiger and our two Junker Steiners. Thanks uh, for, for all of you here uh, asking your questions and also thank you for the online participants. Thank you.